You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Uh, so one of the hardest passages we've come across in Revelation, because we all knew when we were getting into Revelation that this is not exactly the easiest book to read. It's confusing. It's not exactly the easiest book to stomach because it's confusing. And even when you do think you understand it, it's still confusing. And that's okay because to some extent, God doesn't want you to understand the whole thing because it hasn't come to happen yet. He doesn't want to lay out every detail that's coming He wants some of that to be a surprise. In fact, there's parts we haven't gotten to it yet, but he's going to tell John, hey, you just heard some news about what's coming. Don't write that down. That one's just between us. (laughs) So, like, there's elements that we're even missing from the story. Uh, But I I want to remember one of the harder passages that we uh, went over recently. Um, It was about the four horsemen and the seven seals. It was a difficult passage because it seemed like God wasn't bringing evil on the earth, but it's like he was uh, allowing it to run its course. That people wanted to worship the bad things. That people wanted war. They wanted greed. They wanted all of these, these uh, uh, famines and, and all this stuff. So God just oh, turns it over. If you want all that stuff, you can have all that stuff. And so he doesn't just let it run rampant. He actually tells evil it can only do so much damage. But it still is allowed to do its thing because that's the human way. It's what humanity tends to always go towards. As we can see over the last 2,000 years with wars and famines and, and greed and, and murder and all these things. It's still alive and at work in the world uh, throughout all of history. What's difficult in that passage for us as Christians is that because evil was running rampant as these seven seals were broken, guess who's getting persecuted? The Christians. Because the Antichrist is at work in the evil. And if you're anti-Christ, then you're anti-Christians. You're anti-his followers. You want to see Christians hurt and persecuted and broken down. And so what John said with the seven seals is like, look, evil's going to run its course. Stay strong. Stay faithful to God. Don't give up. There is hope. There is goodness coming. Even if your life is taken, there's actually a better story to be told even in that moment. So that was hard to stomach. But today's passage now flips. We go from these seven seals being broken to these seven trumpets. And I want to read it to you. Uh, and it's, it's, again, I'll admit before we even read it, it is hard to stomach. But listen to what's actually going on. Then we're going to stop. And just open our eyes to what's actually being told. So uh, Revelation 8, 6 is where we start all the way to the end of 9. Now seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet. And something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. 
The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star falling from heaven to earth, and it was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given the power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them an angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and is in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. This is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode with them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur, and their heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. But the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. And catch this, this is important. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor giving up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Again, not an easy passage to stomach. A lot of stuff going on there that, first off, we don't even understand. A lot of theories put out that, unfortunately, a lot of them seem to have possible applications, so it's hard to even know which theory to go with. 
But Revelation now is telling us a story that's already happened in the Old Testament. Did anybody catch what story was just retold to us in a new light? What was that? Was that? Heard something? It's from Exodus. Yes, Moses, Egypt, correct. Yes, in the Old Testament, you've got the plagues of Egypt. If you remember this story, God is trying to tell this. uh, He's not just a king over their land. His name's Pharaoh in the Bible. But Pharaoh's like the Egyptian ruler, and the Egyptians considered him to be a god. That this God had put on flesh. So this guy thinks he's a deity, that he's in charge. And then suddenly, this God named Yahweh comes with Moses. And Moses is like, my God wants you to let the Hebrews go. Those are his people. And Pharaoh's like, uh, nope. I'm actually God around here. And if you pay attention to the narrative and you did the right studies, you'd see that every plague, to some extent, seemed to target an Egyptian God of some sort. Even the sun being darkened, the sun to the Egyptians was a god. So when God darkens the sun and everything's just black, the idea is like, hey, (laughs) the god Yahweh has just kind of like destroyed your god. The Egyptians, all your gods are failing you. Everything's not working. Pharaoh's failing you. All your gods are failing you. Turn to Yahweh and repent. Let his people go. And if you follow the story, Pharaoh hardens his heart every time. Ten plagues. Each one gets worse and worse. But Pharaoh's like, no, the Hebrews are mine. They're under my control. They're not leaving this place. They're with me. And so God brings about another plague, which is a warning. Let my people go. And Pharaoh says no. And so God brings about another one. This happens ten times. These plagues keep happening. And Pharaoh just continually hardens his heart more and more. He is as anti-Yahweh as anyone could be. He refuses to give up. He should be noticing by this point like he's just a guy. But he cannot. He cannot compete with the one true God of the universe. And in the end, something very difficult happens. He is stubborn to the point that God says, look, if you don't let my people go, all the firstborns of Egypt." will die. And the way that my people, the Hebrews, aren't going to be affected by this plague, they're going to put a mark above their doorposts. And when I see that mark, I'm not going to come in. They'll be safe from this final plague. And that's the one that finally tips Pharaoh over for a moment. That's hard enough for him to say, okay, Yahweh wins. Get the Hebrews out of here. I don't want to see them anymore. Yahweh can have his people. Of course, in his heart, after he's let him leave, is hardened again and he chases him down just to find himself uh, uh, killed in, in the Red Sea as it collapses on him. That's the story in the Old Testament. What we've seen so far is Christians be persecuted as the seven seals were opened, right? Every time famine comes out, the Christians are dying. Every time war comes out, the Christians are dying. Every time these four horsemen are released, Christians are being martyred, persecuted, killed. Life is not easy. And these martyrs, as we saw last week, these martyrs who have been sacrificed on God's heavenly throne say, God, when are you going to avenge us? When are you going to do something about this? Is this just the way it ends? Just Christians everywhere dying? And God says, no, I have a plan. 
And then he takes their prayers, it says, and he pours their prayers out on the earth. And when he does that, the seven trumpets sound. It's the story of God coming back for his people. When they lived in Egypt, they were oppressed. They were hurt. They were persecuted. They were killed. They were slaves. And God came and he told their oppressors, let my people go. And then he brought plagues to try to show them, let my people go. In Revelation, God returns with the ultimate Passover. It says the Christians in this case are sealed. They've been persecuted this whole time. But this time they're sealed. They're given that mark above above the doorposts so that they're protected from these plagues. And then God says, I'm going to bring these. And they're going to, uh, those who, who aren't Christians in this case, this is me responding to all the martyrs' prayers. I'm coming back to bring these plagues so that they turn to me. Three things happen in the Old Testament story with these plagues. One, God rescues his people from Egypt. Two, God shows Egypt that he's the one true God. And three, God invites Egypt to repent and cooperate. And say that again. In the Egyptian story in the Old Testament, one, God rescues his people from Egypt. Two, God shows Egypt that he's the one true God. And three, God invites Egypt to repent and cooperate. But they harden their hearts. In the book of Revelation, as John is given a glimpse into uh, the end of days, what he sees is the same story being told again. One, God is not just telling Egypt, Egypt in this case is the whole world. He's telling the whole world that I've come to rescue my people. Two, he's showing the whole world that he is the one true God. There aren't any atheists pictured in Revelation. It's as though everyone knows that the one true God is bringing these plagues and still they don't want to repent. And then three, again, he's giving the entire world a chance to repent and cooperate with these plagues. They're a warning. They're a sign. Come to me. Turn to me. See how all the Christians are safe. See how all the Hebrews are safe. Guess how you can be safe too. Become a Hebrew. Become a Christian. Come to me. I don't want you to suffer. But if you continue to be the oppressors, I've come to liberate my people from them. I'm answering the prayers of the martyrs, of my children that you killed, who have asked me, when am I going to avenge their blood? Do I care about them? And I'm here to say, yes, I do. But I care about you too. So turn to me. But that's not the picture Revelation paints. Just as Pharaoh's heart is that hard that he refuses to turn to God and repent. So at this point, the world is so over the top into evil. Think like when the flood came, right? The flood came because there was only one guy who was kind of righteous at the time. That's kind of the way the Bible talks about Noah. He's all right. I guess we can keep Noah alive and his family. Like that's the point that this... Revelation picture is getting to again. The whole world is not just like in the end, kind of off, but like the whole world is completely off. And I still suggest we're a long way from seeing the world be that bad at this point in time. I know we've waited 2,000 years for God to return, but if the world's going to get this bad, I'd still say we got a while. 
Especially because if you go overseas, Christianity is exploding. Every time that Christians get martyred, it creates more Christians. In fact, I, I, I can't remember offhand. I think there was a famous quote from some old king who was like, we got to stop killing them. This isn't working. It's just making it worse. <laughs> and so heaven continues to be established on the earth, but still God says, these are my people. Let them go. But the Bible shows us the world is too bitter to do that. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their truce. God pours out the plagues as a way to say, come to me, and these people are so hardened towards God that they stay with their gods, just like Pharaoh did and the Egyptians did. These who are doing all this affliction on the Christians are actually, uh, they hate God. They're not like neutral towards God. Like, oh yeah, I could turn to him. No, they, they hate God. They don't want have anything to do with him. And these people who have gone through the plagues, they're still living their lives as though they could never care about God's morality or his kingdom whatsoever. They still murder people around them. They still practice the arts of the false gods, the sorceries. They, they practice sex in all of its unintended ways. They rob one another. These plagues for God were meant to bring about repentance. But like Pharaoh, they hardened their hearts. It's kind of like the stories we already know. And I wish I could give you a long list, but I just couldn't think of any. Maybe you can help me out. Okay, so like... You know those stories where like the bad guy is about to die and the good guy actually tries to save the bad guy? All I could think of was like Tarzan, you know, like Clayton. Clayton's about to strangle himself by accident and kill Tarzan at the same time. And though he's trying to kill Tarzan, Tarzan's trying to save Clayton. Maybe I'm the only one who watches Tarzan. I don't know. That, that right there is a story of, of a, a moment where something uh, the the guy who's being afflicted is trying to save someone who's doing the afflicting that's god he sees these people doing the afflicting and and the plagues are actually supposed to make them repent not die but they don't want to it's not that these people aren't worth saving not at all it's just that these people refuse to be saved like clayton see God uses suffering sometimes to turn us towards him. I think it was C.S. Lewis who has that famous quote, quote, uh, and I'd have to look it up for context, but he says, if I remember right, that pain is God's megaphone. Suffering, pain, is a way of turning us towards God. It doesn't always mean that God brings about that pain. When uh, When Satan or the enemy tortures us, That pain turns us towards God. God, save me from my enemies. But sometimes we are just so oblivious to wanting God's help and so angry at him that he has to turn us over to pain so that we'll actually turn to him. He has to turn us over so that the world can do its hard things on us because then finally it'll be like, I need a savior. 
That was Paul in the Corinthian church. There was a guy who was just sitting really bad and did not care and continued to live that way until Paul said, that guy, you need to kick him out of the church because once he's outside of God's protection, life will get so bad that hopefully he'll be like, I, I got to turn back to God and repent of these things I was doing. Hopefully that guy, that suffering that he goes through when you turn him over will save his soul. Whereas if he just stays protected in the church, he's actually going to make his life worse and worse and worse. The prodigal son, he's turned over to suffering. Yet when he returns to God, God saves him. The suffering pushes him towards his heavenly father. And his heavenly father happily brings him in in love. The same God of these plagues who's longing for these people to turn to him in love and repent. I think of my friend Scott Smith, and I'll end with his story. Scott was, uh, when he grew up, he was, um, I'm going to do my best to remember his details well. He'll forgive me if I say these things wrong. But uh, when he was growing up, uh, he was molested by a babysitter. And that started kind of his journey in a bad direction towards sexual healing. Later on in life, at the age of nine, his family uh, introduced him to pornography at the age of nine. And he got hooked, just like someone might get hooked on heroin right away. Scott found himself hooked on porn right away. He didn't know what it was. He was confused by what he was watching, but he latched onto it. Just like many of us in this room, statistics show that many of us need healing from this pain. As Scott's life went on, he found himself really pursuing women in weird ways. He started trying to enact the pornography that he saw. He's like, well, the script called for this to happen, so maybe I'll try that. And then maybe the women will respond in the same way that, that the porn worked out. And so he would, he would try reenacting it. And that ended him with a, uh, 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 a permanent record. Okay, he starts getting marks on his record for uh, these weird sexual moments. And they start piling up. He actually goes to Christian school. He grew up in the church. He just never really focused on Christianity, uh, never really cared too much for God. Uh, but he chose to go to Christian school. He's honest because he thought there'd be a lot of innocent women there who uh, maybe wouldn't quite uh, understand all these things and actually be open to it. So he, he goes into Christian school with that in mind. He actually meets his wife there. He gets married, and then his life starts uh, going out of control. He starts uh, um, pursuing, again, these kind of pornography as well as other sexual acts until finally he's caught by a policeman, and in that moment the policeman just feels like something is really off here. He's taken to a judge, and he's expecting to just kind of like, you know, get a slap on the wrist, be put in jail. He's only got really one thing on his record at this point. But the judge is concerned, and the guy who's going uh, against him uh, is concerned as well. And he, he actually calls for a life sentence, and the judge starts contemplating a life sentence. Should we go for that? And the judge agrees. And this guy who's just had, had uh, two children, uh, premature, and he's got his wife at home who's 
somewhat unaware of just how deep all this goes. He's got a normal job, and now all of his life has just spun completely out of control, and he goes from a normal life to life in prison. In Jackson, state prison. If you've been through cell block seven, the museum that they had, one of those cells was his. Life sentence in Jackson State Prison, life is at its bottom. It has fallen apart. And it's there that he finally turned to God. In the weight of his sin, in all of this suffering that has come upon him, he finally in his prison cell has a spiritual experience where he's like, God, (laughs) you're all I got left. Surrounded by the smells of cell block seven, watching these prison mates all around him play the weirdest games, taking two rats, tying their tails together, and then seeing which one will win in a race as everyone around them cheers. His life is completely flipped upside down. And it's there in prison that he finally meets Jesus, gives his life to God, and his life begins to turn around very quickly. To the point that that he starts doing ministry while in prison as a prisoner. He had a, um, there ended up being a cop that got put in the prison for child molestation is what the word was. And that's not a good thing to be in prison for, even among prisoners, especially when you're a cop. So word got out that these guys were just, all the prisoners were going to gang up on this guy and kill him. Scott actually had the strength to go up to this man and start telling him about Jesus in the prison courtyard. (laughs) And he starts praying with him. And there in the prison courtyard, the Holy Spirit comes on this cop as he receives Jesus. And he begins speaking in tongues. The last place you would expect to be seeing an experience like this. But that's how strongly God has changed his life. He has fallen into suffering. He's fallen into the weight of his sin. And instead of just spending that moment getting worse and worse and hardening his heart towards God, that pain became God's megaphone to say, wake up, come to me. And he repented. And he's still married. He went from a life sentence to getting out of prison in two years. Which doesn't happen, by the way. His life was so radically changed that right now he actually he lives in Texas with his wife and kids and they fight human trafficking in their area. They go to the brothels and they pull women out of the sex industry. They save them from it. That's something here in Jackson that we started several coalitions around and can never figure out how to do. But this guy has been so radically changed that he and his ministry will walk in and see this happen. Scott's life is different now. I don't know if you heard in the news, but there was this giant explosion in Texas uh, this past week when uh, propane pretty much blew up a building and shattered a bunch of houses around it. He felt that. He lived nearby. And they've been going house to house and checking in on people. They've seen, uh, I believe, one family baptized in the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. 
They don't even like expect that to happen. They're just going to do ministry because his life has been so radically changed that he has to give it back to God. You see, suffering and pain, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, it's God saying, wake up, turn to me. And we have to be ready to repent in those moments, to give ourselves over to him. He's a God of love, a God who wishes to see no one perish, even the people who persecute us. And that's why rather than just wipe the world out, he sends these signs. Hey, wake up, come to me. Is the world really so far gone that no one will repent? I'd say at this moment, no, it's not. And so we still have work to do. To see more people like Scott Smith. Even meeting Scott, for me, that was a God moment. Uh, I just made an account on a webpage to do audiobooks. And he was like one of three people ever to reach out to me. He did it almost right away. He lives in Texas and had no idea I live in Jackson. <laughs> and I was like, you chose me because I live in Jackson. You went to Jackson State uh, Prison, right? He's like, no, I didn't even know you were out there. This is amazing, just kind of like connection uh we did a podcast with him not long ago we'll post the link up on our facebook later tonight if you'd like to hear his story from him uh doing an interview with him but it's one that that we need to see more of so as we continue to pray for the community of jackson and for this church and for those around us let's let's move with the love of god who calls all of us christians and non-Christians to repent and come to him and join his family. Amen? The band's going to come up. I'm going to pray for you. And we'll do a little quick business as well. God, we just thank you for a chance to see your love. You know, there's a lot of Christians out there, maybe not in this room, though I'm sure there's some, but there's a lot of Christians in other countries who are probably often crying out, God, do you care about us? And Revelation 8 through 9 is a resounding, yes, of course I care about you. I love you. And your pain does not go unnoticed. And so, God, we turn ourselves over to the God of love, to Yahweh, to the one true God. And we ask for Jackson, for the masses, that they would come to you as well. Use us to, to bring about your mission. In Jesus' name, amen.